Welcome to Booth One, everybody. This is our 75th episode. Can you believe it, Frank? Wow, wow. It feels like 175. (laughs) Gary Zabinski here alongside my co-host, Frank Taranjo, who's recently returned from the front, where he was judging Illinois State Drama Finals. I say the front because you were snowbound for a day or so downstate, much like being on the Russian front. (laughs) I I was stranded in in Peoria for an extra day. I was down there Friday watching the Illinois High School Association State Drama Festival, the schools that had won their sectional and made it to state. So I saw three plays Friday. There are 40-minute cuttings where they weren't full plays, but three plays Friday morning, three Friday afternoon, three Friday evening, and then three Saturday morning, and I was supposed to leave to come home, and they got hit with this huge blizzard, and so we got snowed in. We stayed an extra day. But the kids are so talented, and like I said, these are the winning ones from the sectionals, and uh, we really, really had a great time. You saw something unusual down there as well at the uh, convention <laughs> center, didn't you? I mean, one unexpected yes, in the unexpected. middle of central Illinois. Middle central Illinois. They were at the big convention center, and there was the National Alpaca show <laughs> going on. Who knew there was such a thing? I did not. Well. But they were like... Almost 600 alpacas in this gigantic room. Mmm, fragrant, eh? <laughs> they were, uh, I didn't notice it. Other people mentioned it, but I did not notice it. But they were amazing. I, I, didn't really, I wouldn't know an alpaca from whatever, but they're... I, I they're, bet you would now. I do. I'll completely, oh, I can tell the difference between the different types. There's the kind <laughs> with the, the fluffy fur, and there's the kind yes. that kind of have the uh, dreadlock kind of fur. And it was a whole it was competition, just like we were having drama. And they're wonderful. They're kind of a, a llama, but I think they're in the camel family because when they kneel down, their their knees bend forward. And they were really so cute and incredibly soft. And the stuff they make from alpacas, they had, of course, a big store there, and you could buy socks and all kinds of things. It's just the softest, and it's hypoallergenic against the skin. It's way better than wool. I just learned so much about alpacas. What a totally random thing know, to run into. Mm-hmm. And when we stayed, we stayed over the extra night, which was Saturday night. They had the finals on Sunday, and I thought, I'm going to the finals. So I went and I saw the best brown one, the best beige one. The best, it's like best in show with the different breeds. Cool. So yes. they had all, I didn't stay to see who actually won. But oh, damn. I do have a video of them all trotting we'll out for the finals. We'll have to look that up and see who won the Nationals this we year. We will have to see that, yeah. Well, I'm so excited to welcome back a guest today. Mm-hmm. One of the most distinguished authors in America, our old friend, Stuart Dybeck. Hey, Stuart, how are you? Hi, nice to be back. Thanks it's to- fantastic to have you back. You were on our show a couple of years ago, episode 37, I believe. It was, yeah. yeah now we're on 75. Wow. Now we're on 75, yeah. Time flies. Like Every nice. 30 or so episodes, we'd like to have you back. <laughs> yeah, every, every 30 to 30 40 or so. yeah. episodes. For those of you who are not familiar with uh, Mr. Dybeck, I will tell you that Stewart is the distinguished writer in residence at Northwestern University here. I'm going to embarrass you now for just a few moments, Stewart, if you don't mind, just to fill our listeners in on a little of your background. Stewart is the author of several books of fiction, including I Sailed with Magellan, The Coast of Chicago. Uh, a production of which I directed uh, some years ago. (laughs) Childhood in Other Neighborhoods, Ecstatic Cahoots, and Paper Lantern Love Stories. Both I Sailed with Magellan and the Coast of Chicago were New York Times notable books, and the Coast of Chicago was a one-book, one-Chicago selection. It's very rarefied company to be a one-book, one-Chicago selection. Uh, Darren Strauss in the New York Times book review said of Paper Lantern and Ecstatic Cahoots, which were, correct me if I'm wrong, Stuart, those were published... 
virtually simultaneously, weren't they? Simultaneously. Yeah. He said these two new collections established Dybeck as not only our most relevant writer, but maybe our best. Wow. That's a big claim. It is. Stewart has also published collections of poetry, including Streets in Their Own Ink Mm -hmm. and Brass Knuckles. Uh, Among his numerous awards are a Penn Malamud Prize for Distinguished Achievement in uh, the short story, a Lannan Award, several O. Henry Prizes, Stop Me Anytime, Stuart, and fellowships (laughs) from the NEA and the Guggenheim Foundation. And in 2007, and this is the last thing I'll say about you, Stuart was awarded the MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that must have been an exciting year for you it was it was it was what allowed me to finish those two books that were simultaneously published. the fellowship yeah, yeah it gives I, you the it, time it, it and really the, was, the was, sort of financial was, stability to do that yeah i'm remain always grateful for it i mentioned that you're the distinguished writer in residence at northwestern so that means that you're teaching young people the art of writing correct What's your specialty? Well, my specialty was, uh, I, I, let's put it this way, I have a specialty. <laughs> Thanks to Northwestern in that when I came, they said you can pretty much teach what you want. Nice. And after messing around for the first couple of years and getting to know this particular population of students, I gravitated to a class that at first I was just going to call weird fiction <laughs> at the prompting of my students. Yes, yes, teach yeah, that. I would yeah, totally take yeah, that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> but when I looked at it and thought about, I, I chickened out and uh, ended up calling it uh, fabulous fiction. That's good too. And fabulous fiction is kind of a play on words because it's a class about writing uh, what's sometimes called fabulism. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to create a class that gave people who wanted to work primarily, particularly in imaginative literature that wasn't realism. So it's a a big umbrella class if somebody wants to write sci-fi, if they want to write horror, if they want to write Stephen King kind of thrillers, or if they want to write high literary art a la Borges, Kafka, Mm -hmm. Poe, which is really kind of uh, where the class probably leans ever so slightly in that direction. I see. Bunch of serious students, eh? (laughs) And black humor, metafiction. I mean, it's just a a huge bunch of little categories under this uh, larger category. I just kind of taught it as a kind of a let's see what happens, and it's become a class that I now teach every year and have taught probably for the last eight years. And one of the things that happened in it is that these are undergraduates. It's an elective class, so the seniors get first dibs. So the class is primarily seniors, meaning kids around 21, Mm -hmm. 20 years old. Nobody would ever expect any of them to have published. I mean, when I teach grad students, mostly the grad students have not yet as yet published. And the thing that's really uh, intrigued me about the class, because I've taught now for well over 30 years, you know, you can't do that without having some kind of pedagogical interest in the teaching of an art form. In that eight or nine years that I've taught this class, there have been something like a dozen published stories. 
while that's while, while you're in while they're in the class or the stories that came out of were class. written in the class. Uh-huh. You, you know, when you send to a literary magazine, it'll take longer to get an answer back right. than it takes for the quarter to run. Right, that's true. <laughs> so I have a reader full of Borges and Calvino and Ray Bradbury and the usual suspects, but now I have uh, a good sampling of those stories from Northwestern students in the class. So wow. when the students come in the class now, there's work from what is essentially still their peer group. We talked a little bit about your students and their writings last time. Unfortunately, you didn't have anything to read for us, but I think you've brought something today, and I wonder if you might read us one of the stories that one of your uh, students has written. I'd just love to hear what comes out of this fabulous fiction class. Okay, great. This is about a five, six-minute story. Okay, perfect. Read. It's written by a, a young writer named Rex Shannon, who graduated from Northwestern just this year. And the title of it is, Come Up Here. The first time I spoke to God, I was eating a boiled egg at dinner with my parents. We sat at a corner booth, which was better for my dad's back. He ordered banana pancakes, and my mother ordered a tuna sandwich. Halfway through the meal, I heard a voice say, Take your mother's tuna sandwich and throw it on the ground. (laughs) Heard might be misleading, actually. When God speaks to you, it doesn't sound like a voice in your head. It's certainly not a booming voice. If you read the Bible, you think God had this deep baritone. That's not right. It feels like having a thought that you know is really God's. He repeated himself. Abraham, I want you to pick up that tuna sandwich and throw it on the ground. I knew it was God, but I I needed to make sure. (laughs) God? Speaking, he said. You want me to throw this tuna sandwich on the ground? (laughs) I do, and right now. He started counting down. Five, four, three. I grabbed my mother's sandwich. And the plate, God said. Also break the plate. (laughs) I stood up on the booth's cushions to raise the plate as high as possible. I felt I needed more velocity. Abraham, Dad said, what are you doing? Mother was pulling at my slacks, horrified, begging me to give her plate back. I was going to drop it. I really was, but he stopped me. Enough, God said. Put it down. I obeyed. What the hell was that, Dad said. (laughs) Dad, Mother said, don't use that potty mouth around Abraham. (laughs) Nice plate, I said. I was just making sure. Making sure of what, my dad asked. Making sure it was nice. We continued eating. The waiter refilled dad's coffee. When he leaned over the table, he tipped my mother's plate onto the ground, where it cracked into three perfect pieces. (laughs) A laser couldn't have made cuts more exact. Terribly sorry, the waiter said. Richard, look, my mother said. Three identical pieces. My dad made the sign of the cross. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he said. It's a sign, is what it is, a sign. God provides, God said. My mother took out her disposable camera and asked the waiter to take a photo of the three of us holding up a different piece of the plate. (laughs) Very good, Abraham, God said as the camera flashed. Now I know you love me. If my parents freaked out about the plate, I imagine how they'd react to my contact with God. They'd go nuts. I couldn't tell them, so I didn't. 
Scott started to talk to me after every Mass. Never during. I reached out to him. I had to. I, I was in Mass. That's what you do. But he never responded until we left the chapel doors. Mass was generally nice, he told me once, but a little cloying. He just examined it from afar. Wow, he said one Sunday. Now that was a doozy. The Mass, I asked. Yes, my God, snooze fest. <laughs> the way that guy interpreted the letter to the Philippians. Not what Paul meant, obviously. What did Paul mean, I asked. Well, God said, pausing, well, yours is not to ask why. Isn't Father Shamish just doing his best? He can't possibly know it as well as you, right? I didn't like when I called him out like that. <laughs> I could feel him pulling away from me. It's easy to tell when the connection is severed and he's no longer with you. You feel less warm, for one thing, and you get this tickle in your hands that you can't shake, like he left through your fingertips. He returned next Sunday as Dad drove our escort out of the church lot. Sorry for what I said last week, I said. Water under the bridge, my friend, water under the bridge. Thank you for forgiving me. Do you truly want to be forgiven, he asked. <laughs> course, I said, I'll do anything. This was God I was speaking to, after all. <laughs> when you get home, I want you to go to your father's record player and play me some rock and roll. Nobody, not even mother, was allowed to touch dad's record player. Every few weeks, my dad came into the kitchen and said, why don't you and your mother take a walk? This meant he wanted to listen to his men. That's what he called the band he liked. I heard his whispers to mother. You and Abraham, go to the park, okay? I, I'm going to listen to my men. His men were hardcore. I knew this because when we approached our house, red-faced from the cold air, I could hear their electric guitars rumbling through the air. I liked to think that was the sound telephone wires made, or lightning, if we could hear them. When he saw us through the window, he'd shut it off, but you could still feel the vibrations in the metal fence around our property and the trash there'd be four or five Diet Cokes that weren't there before. Enjoy your walk, my dad would ask, covered in sweat. Very much, thanks, my mother would say back, blushing. My mother loved when my dad sweat. Go upstairs, you two, mother would say, and don't come back down until you're clean. Oh, God, I said, I, I don't know about that. D dad loves his record player. I could feel the connection loosening. Wait, I said, okay, I'll do it. Okay, of course I'll do it. Very nice, he said. That's what I would expect from you. When we got home from Mass, my dad turned on the TV and started watching football. My mother began to crochet as she did when my dad watched the Niners. I walked straight up to my parents' bedroom. I could feel my heart in my ears. Entering dad and mother's room was forbidden. I didn't even know what it looked like. Under the bed, God said. I walked over to my dad's bed. They didn't share. And pulled out the record player. Lovely, he said. Now lock the door. I obeyed. Put on something heavy, God said, and crank it. <laughs> I looked for my dad's rock and roll record, which wasn't hard to find. It was the only one he owned. God showed me how to work the turntable. I put the on the LP and hovered my hand above the tone arm, waiting for God to intervene. Well, he said, you're not going to stop me? No, he said. Hit it. <laughs> I let it fall. The church bell rang several times. I expected guitars. This is it, I asked. Wait for it, God said. I'm waiting, I said. Wait for it. Just wait for it. 
The guitar started. Louder, God said. I turned it up. Louder, God said. That's maximum, I yelled. The guitars were so loud I could hear them in my chest, vibrating my rims. I felt powerful with those guitars playing like that. And then the vocals came in. Wow, I yelled to God over the music. No wonder my dad likes this music so much. Fuck yeah, God yelled back. I like this, but I think Scott will always be the true frontman. You, I mean, Johnson's voice is great, but Scott's stage presence, that's how you can tell an iconic vocalist from a so-so vocalist. If they put on a show, God was really jamming out. I could feel it. It felt good to make him feel good. It didn't take long for my father to break down the door. He head-butted it off the hinges and stormed in, a bruise already forming on his scalp. He yanked the tone arm off so violently it snapped. That really set him off. He loved that record player. My mother was sobbing, saying, Richard, Richard, leave it. He told her to go back and watch the game. Then he took me to my room. I thought I was going to be beaten to death. But when he took off his shirt and belt, he started whipping himself. Look what you're making me do, he said. Fat red welt sprang all over his back with each lash. What kind of son does this to his father? You are flogging me. Put down the whip, Abraham, he whimpered. You're hurting me. He lashed himself for a long time. Eventually, the pain was too much, and he crumpled to the floor. He lay face down like that, raw and bleeding, until my mother came in and cradled his head in her lap. She stroked his hair, neither acknowledged me, sitting on the bed with my back against the wall. She sung Dad a lullaby, and he fell asleep. I didn't speak to my parents or God for a few days. My mother wouldn't look at me, and Dad skipped work and spent all his time on the couch, reapplying Vaseline to his wounds. We drove to the next Mass in silence, and I heard nothing from God in Mass, like usual. But I felt him connect with me as we pulled out of the parking lot. What the hell, I asked God. What happened to God provides? My dad's back is busted. Listen, he said, I know you're angry. That's fair. Your parents will recover. I got carried away back there. But as you know, God works in mysterious ways. But you're God. Don't you know how you work? I have a plan. If you have a plan, I asked him, then what do you need me for? You're a vessel, obviously, a vessel of God's will. I don't want to be just a vessel, I said. Abraham, do you love me? Of course I love you, I said. Then show me. I felt him leave underneath my fingernails. A few Sundays later, God said, Abraham, there is a mighty task ahead for you today. What sort of task, I asked. Yours is not to ask why, God said. Whenever he got all highfalutin with his words, I knew something was serious. The day seemed normal. We went to Mass, we went to the diner, we sat in the corner booth. We still weren't talking, really. Dad ordered his pancakes, mother her sandwich. The only difference was, turning out of the parking lot, we were T-boned by Renault, doing 70 and a 35. I couldn't see who was driving. My parents slammed against the interior of the car so violently I thought their necks had snapped. I thought Dad's back was broken. Mother's thigh was impaled by the stick shift. She lay unconscious across the center console. I wasn't wearing my seatbelt, so I launched out the window and died on impact. I could see my body a bloody mess beneath the diner's windows, but I, whatever I was, was still inside the car. God, I said, we've just been in a horrific accident. So we have, God said. Help, I said. I cannot, he said. 
I tried to move my parents to help them. Nothing happened. I looked down. My body, I remembered. I needed my body. Bring me back, I yelled. But I was already floating away. I tried to swim back down. It wasn't working. Do you love me, God said. You know that I loved you, I said. But I need to be with them right now. I need to be down there with my parents. Show me you love me. Help them, I said. Come up here, God said. Come up here and show me that you love me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. That's quite the story. 21 years old. Yikes. 21 years old. You know, when you're in a class and somebody writes a piece like that, it, yeah. it, it, transforms, it transforms what everybody's doing. Well, it's got everything. I mean, it's, it's funny. It's, it's personal. It's got a great climax. I mean, it really is yeah, a you terrific story. You don't see coming. Yeah. yeah, you don't. I mean, none of it you see coming. None of I mean, it. When we says throw the sandwich on the floor, you're like, what? So right from the start, you know, it's going to be. Yeah, a, it's a big, it's a big test. I mean, he's yeah. testing Abraham. He um, is. Uh, yeah, parallel with a b- biblical story. Indeed. Yeah. Now, has that one been published? It will be. Yeah, uh, I'm it, sure it, it hasn't will be. appeared in print yet. I wanted to mention something, Stuart. I uh, touched upon this in your uh, bio that uh, you'd uh, received a fellowship from the. NEA, the uh, National Endowment for the Arts. It, it seems that the NEA and the National Endowment for Humanities have been refunded, much to the chagrin of the Trump administration, oh, who've been trying not only to defund, yeah. but to get rid of them altogether. Right. It's been funded to the slight increase of $3 million each. So they're both, so getting, a, they're both getting $150 million. Great. It appears that Republicans in Congress were, were very much the driving force behind this. So that's, Behind getting it funded. Yeah, that, wow. that, that encourages me in some way. Yeah. Does that encourage you, Stuart? Have yeah, you, yeah. I, it, it was terrifying, actually, that uh, a country that's dependent so heavily on the arts, the voice of America, for instance, mm-hmm. was, was just absolutely instrumental. And to, to kind of um, think that um, and uh, express that thought by cutting them off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. <laughs> that, that they don't participate in everybody's life, even for people who are non-theater goers, non-readers, non-opera mm-hmm. buffs. It doesn't mean that the arts don't figure in, in the way we think about, everybody thinks about the world. Right. Frank, I wanted to ask you about your work in the speech and drama areas that you used to teach. Uh-huh. You frequently would take a longer work, even if it was a short story or a novel or something longer, and, and do cuttings, because uh, the drama competitions and the speech competitions have to be a certain time length. Yes. Um, They're very strict about that, They right? are very strict. Uh, drama competitions are 40 minutes. Correct. Dramatic interp is, what, three? No, eight. Eight minutes. They're eight minutes, yeah, and they're very serious about that. And the plays, I believe it's still, if you're 40 minutes, you're fine. If you're 40 minutes in one second, you're disqualified. So, <laughs> Wow. Yeah, so cutting is very important, you know, down to the, down to the wire, literally. It's and like make, um, making them wait for a championship fight. It kind of, it, it's completely like that, too. Particularly if you have a piece like the one that you just read, where the audience could laugh, you have to factor that in as well, because what if I get huge laughs? I mean, I may not get any if it's a preliminary round where there's two people sitting there, you may get a chuckle or two. But if you're in a final round and there's 40, 50, 60, or 100 people listening to you, it's very possible you're going to get laughs and go over time and 
and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, my big thing was when the play that I directed in 1979 won the state championship. It had a great slot. It was it was eight o'clock on Friday evening, and it got huge laughs. I was doing Smiles of a Summer Night, which is what Little Night Music was taken from, and we had you know gotten reactions, but it got huge laughs. And I thought, oh my God, we're going overtime. I had to run out and go back and tell people to pick up the ending, and you have to be overtime on two stopwatches or two people timing. One was thirty nine fifty nine, one was forty oh one. So, do they average them together? Well, you have to be overtime on both of them. So one of them made it by one second. One was just that split second where a person pressed the stopwatch. Wow. So I definitely tested that rule. But getting back to making cuttings, yes, you have to make sure that it makes sense. You have to, to factor in any kind of audience response. And I always look for things, particularly in something like a prose piece or a dramatic inter piece, like you had, where you laugh at the beginning because you can relate to whatever sort of human comedy is going on, and then you change it at the end. One of my favorite ones I did, and I always try to do good literature, was from Huckleberry Finn, if people remember the feud scene in Huckleberry Finn, where he meets this young man staying at his house. They are friends. They talk about the feud. It's really very funny. And then at the end, the feud actually takes place, and he has to drag his friend's body out of the water. So, um, you know, not a dry eye if, if you do it properly. Sure. It's two full chapters probably an hour's worth of reading I had to do in eight minutes on the nose. Let's get back to this story that we just heard, uh, which you read so beautifully, Stuart. I particularly liked the analogy and the imagery of the biblical chatting with God. Mm -hmm. Very imaginative, very clever. When you first read this story, when it was handed in to you, or when the student got up in class and read it, what did you most like about this story? You know, when we read parts of that one aloud, I think in some ways the most important thing was the fellow who wrote it could actually hear his classmates breaking up. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because that, if, if that doesn't happen... The, yeah, you may the, think it's the, funny when you're writing it, but to actually get yeah. that feedback is important. To, yeah. to, to actually feel like, wow, that... Wow, they thought on, it was funny, too. ...on a visceral <laughs> intelligence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the discussion points was one of the students in the class talked about the fact that some people still might find that a blasphemous story and that if you belong to this religion or that, it seems like the writer's taking enormous liberties. And it was an opportunity to really talk about the dimension of the story that's crucial to the class, which is that you can write a story in which the reader has to absolutely believe that the magic that's going on Mm-hmm. is intended to be real magic. Mm-hmm. Or you can write a story that's got an escape hatch, which is that what is going on is might just be going on in this person's mind. This story certainly falls into that category. Sure. I, I wasn't sure by the ending whether this was going on in Abraham's mind or whether he really was speaking to God. And, and the ambiguity, the, the fact that you can, at, as a human being, think that both can be present at the same time. You say it's going to be published? Well, I, I just have done this so long, I know when I... You know when you see a winner. I, I yeah. know when I see <laughs> You know one when you see one. Yeah. I, yeah. There, um, was, there was only one in the entire time that I've been teaching that I was sure was going to be published in it. It, it, it has not been. And I think the only reason for that is that it, it's a longer piece. It needed another bout of rewriting, and the quarter was over. 
and the student was graduated. And the, the shorter pieces you can actually kind of get in, in shape. Yeah. Oh, really? That, that's what fascinates me about this class. It's not me. That is, I'm teaching all kinds of other writing classes where this isn't happening. Uh-huh. There's something about this course. Uh-huh. This fabulous fiction course? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There, there's something that's going on there. I mean, I think I know what it is, but it's not the kind of thing that I would take into a graduate class. On the undergraduate level, students not only tolerate but often ask for exercises. I'm not a big fan of them. But when I first began teaching the class, they asked, they wanted exercises. Give us an example of an exercise or two. Well, the exercise that's been, you know, I just made them up. We start with talking about fairy tales. I have another story that's based on the mirror, mirror on the wall fairy tale that was Mm -hmm. published in a lit magazine. So the first exercise is kind of just to put it in a sentence that's the exercise is a little bit more involved than this, but it's just basically write your own fairy tale. Do a takeoff on one that's been written or think about the ones that have been written and make your own up. I mean, I knew at the time that that was not a very good exercise. <laughs> and they have a lot of trouble with it, but they, but they do it, and it, once in a while it produces something interesting, and then we move on. But by that time, we've had the opportunity as a class to read a bunch of different work together so that everybody's catching up and acquiring the same vocabulary and the idea for the course is being established through reading and experience. Uh, the, I, the only film I, I show is La Jetée and the very first, you know that one by the Chris Marker? It's one of my favorite films ever made. So we, you know, we start out with that, which is a, a film that's done in photographs, still photos. So playing with the whole notion of time, which is what it's about. It's a time travel film. There's been an atomic war. People are surviving barely under the streets of Paris in the subway system. And the rulers, the, 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 the leaders have realized that the only way human, human beings can survive is they have to travel in time and ask the future for help. It, it's a brilliant, brilliant film. Chris Marker was from that Camus generation. Uh-huh. So you've got all the famous themes, right? In the, you've got time travel. You've got the Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein, the mad doctor who's doing time travel. You've got uh, the end of the world, Armageddon. Uh, I mean, you just, just crammed into this 20-minute film. Wow. It's probably one of the most influential 20 minutes that's ever been written in. If you haven't seen it, you 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 are you will realize it's an absolute masterpiece. Definitely going at the top yeah. of my list. Yeah. Yeah. What what do you find, Stuart? That besides films like this, what do you find that inspires young people today in the classroom? Is there anything in particular, or several kind of topics or subjects that they seem to gravitate towards? Absolutely. I mean, this is a time for the um, dystopian novel hmm. when uh, I'm guessing that when we around the table when we that the dystopian piece that we we might have seen a couple of them as kids as as young people that 1984 was at the top of the list mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that you know a little later on there was uh, Clockwork Orange but that was pretty much it yeah I mean you know if you dug around you might come up with a few more sure Blade Runner well, comes to mind well, things la- la- like that that's, that's a little come, bit later that's coming later uh-huh. but 
if you think about the kids today, everything on television is dystopian. For instance, mean the zombie stuff and all that kind of everything, thing. Yeah. Everything. Everything. Yeah. Man in the High Castle. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hand, Handmaid. Handmaid's Tale. Handmaid's Tale. Tale. Mm-hmm. I mean, all those big, wonderful things that TV is now doing and distinguishing itself by are, are essentially dy- dystopian. And, and their literary stars are people like George Saunders, uh, Adam Johnson. So, you know, when you a- ask me, I, I mean, there could be several answers, but that, that one comes to mind immediately. It's very much somehow, I think, representative of what they feel about, about the time. And they tap into that then in their writings, and you've noticed that with the stuff they've turned in. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point in time, they're, they're, it, it's already so thoroughly explored that in, in some ways they're a little careful not to throw themselves into a field that they've seen so many uh-huh. representations of. The exercise in the class, that's the one that is the most successful and a lot of them write their final story based on that exercise, is they're asked to create a magic object. They're, they're given a choice. They can either create a magic object or a magic portal. And I think that the reason that the class has been so successful in creating good work is that just accidentally the exercises have stumbled into something with the magic object story or the magic portal story there has to be an interaction between the character and the magic object or the character has to enter the magic portal. What I never realized, I mean, it didn't occur to me for a moment. It was just a total accident. You, you would have to go so far out of your way to forestall the inevitable direction that that's going to lead you. And the direction that that's going to lead you is to one of the greatest themes in literature transformation. Their stories are transformative, and that's what's getting them published. Mm-hmm. Now, does the, the magic object or portal, can it be sort of symbolic, or does it actually have to be literally... I bar, I bar that word. <laughs> Which one? Symbol. I think symbol is a great, great word, but I think it's a better word for another great art form, the art form called reading. For me, reading is a, is a great art, and most English classes are about the art of reading. Uh-huh. This is class is about the art of writing. And the problem I have with symbol in this class is that I don't want them thinking about what their writing means. I want them making it. Uh-huh. So what's replaced symbol is resonant image. And what a magic object is is an image. What a magic portal is is an image. And the way you make it gives it these resonances. So when somebody is now in their story having to have a contact, you know, so if the magic object is, is a time machine, you have to get in it and it's going to take you somewhere. If it's a rocket ship, you get in it and it's going to take you somewhere. If it's a, a dead person, if it's a vampire, it's going to bite you or you have to kill it. If it bites you, it's going to transform you. If you uh-huh. kill it, it's going to transform you. If it's a war, I mean, you can just go on, on mm-hmm. and on. Now, in a classroom for reading, the zombies and the vampires and the rocket ship and the time machine are all symbols. But in the class, I don't want them to be symbols. Uh-huh. I don't want the writer to be thinking of what it means because all, 
125% of your energy has got to go into making it. If you make it right, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be smarter than you. You can't possibly figure out all those resonances any more than Shakespeare could have figured out all the resonances of Hamlet or the ghost. Shakespeare could not have known that Hamlet sometime in the future would be Hamlet the Christian, Hamlet the existentialist, right. Hamlet right. the this, Hamlet the that, all the things that we've made Hamlet into. He, and he couldn't have cared. He was moving on to his next right. tragedy or right. his next comedy. Right. You know, God, I just, I just did it with this Hamlet. I got to make something funny now. <laughs> It's not the writer's job to do that. It's not. It's, yeah, it's the great. reader. It's a, and the, because uh, uh, the writer is working with abstraction, the writer absolutely needs the reader as a co-creator. The only kind of gripe I have sometimes is that reading isn't taught in the classroom as the great art that it is. I, I just have the greatest respect, really, as a writer for a reader. I, you can't exist without... With, without, the, without the reader, and, and um, I, th- I think one of the wonderful experiences that reading gives us is that I just read this great story by Flannery O'Connor. Okay, you have, but you've kind of created the story too. It's a mystery. Only get so far in thinking about it, and then your mind starts to zoom around. <laughs> yeah, in a way, how, sure. how do human beings do this? I, how, how do these words on the page seem godly or make me cry or who's doing it is is it flannery o'connor doing it or am i doing it it's a mystery yeah it's a it's a it's a wonderful mystery it's a wonderful mystery and and no one will ever have the exact answer. no i mean i, I don't know if you guys were you guys uh secret readers at night with flashlights sure <laughs> i mean isn't that some of the greatest thing that you could ever have as a human being that feeling like the house is asleep and they want you to be asleep, and you've got your flashlight, and, and you're on that raft with Huck. Yeah. <laughs> or you're on that pirate ship with Jim Hawkins, or you're just take, so swept away. It's, and, you know, going back to the NEA, <laughs> we need it. We, we, we as human beings demand these things. They make us human. Stuart, you mentioned one of the exercises that you're not actually all that, all that in favor of, but you've used in your class is the exercise of you must write a fairy tale. You must create your own fairy tale, your own fable. Right. You have a story here by another student called Mirror, which you referenced back on episode 37, but we didn't get a chance to actually hear any of it. So I wonder if you might be able to read some of that for us, or all of it. It's probably not very long. This is a story that is written, was written by a, a student named uh, Caitlin Jenrich. And she uh, wrote two stories that quarter. A quarter is 10 weeks that were published. <laughs> wow. Wow. I mean, really, just astonishing. Gee, I feel so inadequate. <laughs> I, I, if I could write two stories in, a week, in 10 weeks that were published, I would think that. I can't even write a grocery list. I know. It's, just, it's amazing. Of course, after her stepmother had gone dancing into a burning grave, the queen still had to destroy every trace of her from the palace. Out went her ridiculous gowns, all tulle and satin, 
and absurdly stitched flowers. Out went the lotions and ointments, the small vials of perfume and darkly burbling liquid. Out went the four-poster bed, the golden cups, the rugs. Her fiancé coordinated the piles of flaming furniture and tried not to ask too many questions. He blamed it on the early loss of a father figure, the poisonous relationship with her stepmother, those defining years spent raised by dwarves. The servants pointed out that her stepmother had, after all, tried to kill her three or four times. <laughs> the townspeople told him that the queen hadn't had very many happy memories in that castle. Poor thing. Her fiancé nodded along while secretly mourning the loss of a very fine set of hunting knives, wickedly sharpened to perfection. <laughs> queen didn't care. She watched it all burn from the highest tower. If she had a god, she thought it would be the swirls of smoke rising past the pale blue sky and beyond. She saved the mirror for last. It tried, of course, to convince her otherwise. It told her she was beautiful, a fact of which she was already well aware. <laughs> <laughs> it showed her lands beyond the reaches of her kingdom, past the diamond mountains and the black canyons, and claimed it could help her conquer them. She had no use for additional countries. That would only require more bureaucracy, it warned her that her fiancé was flighty, unreliable, and far too innocent, and that she would require the mirror to keep him in check. She laughed and said her fiancé was the least of her worries. <laughs> Finally, the mirror showed her one last image, its best hand. A raven-haired girl sat on the forest floor. Light fell like gold dust through the trees and settled on her shoulders. Her skin was white as snow. The huntsman fell to his knees before her. She had kissed him once long time ago. The raven-haired girl and the mirror and the queen both raised their hands to their lips and considered. And what, said the queen to the mirror, what can this possibly mean? Every good ruler needs a heart, said the mirror in an old cracked voice. I can be yours. The queen tilted her head. Behind the scene, playing on the mirror's surface, the girl reached out a hand to touch the huntsman's head, while her head tilted up toward the sky and the sun, the queen could see her own face, older now, more savage, but just as lovely. She carefully took the mirror from the wall and then, after a moment of adjusting, threw it against the floor. Glass shattered. With the heel of her boot, she ground every shard into the stone until nothing was left but a fine silvery powder. Then she gathered all the powder up in her hands and blew it out the window until it joined with the wreathing smoke columns of the sky. After all, it would never do to see what happened next. That kind of information in the hands of her fiancé or her advisors or her vassals, inconceivable. But now who was left to know what she had done? How she had taken the huntsman's knife and measured the weight of it carefully, considering before finally pressing it against her skin? How she had cut a small slit just under her breastbone, felt the cool kiss of steel sliding past her lungs, how her chest had snapped and burned when she plucked her own heart from behind her ribcage and brought it beating into the light, how curious she had felt afterwards, light and strange and pure, but just as empty as before, how the huntsman could hardly stand to look at her yet couldn't drag his eyes away. She handed her heart to him, still thumping unevenly, and smiled her best approximation of kindness, here, she said, you can take this to the queen. No, it was best that the memory remain a secret. 
And since her stepmother had taken care of the huntsman once his presumed treachery was discovered, the queen could finally rule in peace. Just once, looking out at the window of the highest tower, did she allow herself to think about that day for the last time. In many, many years, warm sunlight in her hair, the dark blue of the huntsman's eyes, the scent of iron and blood on the wind, and her heartbeat like a war drum pounding long after it had left her hands. But that was long ago, and so much had happened since. The queen dusted the last remains of the mirror off her skirt, closed the tower window, and went down to join her fiancé in watching the rest of her stepmother burn. Oh, wow. <laughs> Yay. Yes, and that, that that's came a out lovely of, story. Yeah, and that came out of the exercise. <laughs> well, I mean, that came out of this wonderful young writer. Well, you're right. Yeah, yeah. messing around with the exercise. But, oh, God. I no, just, it's great. But, you know, we all have this... Right or not, I think we all have this stuff encoded within us in a different kind of a, of a class. You would be talking about Jung's archetypes and all <laughs> kinds of other things that seem to be encoded in people. And when, when you em- approach the fairy tale, uh, no longer a child, you're tapping into that. And um, we're, we're, we're kind of, in many ways, all looking for those well, what Jung called archetypes, but that encoding that we share. And when a writer can harness it, I think, again, we're back to that point, writer and reader. The reader feels the, those, those old networks mm-hmm. being lit up again, and, and now you're, you're the reader and you're, you're right there. Frank, were you uh, reminded of Into the Woods at any point during that story? <laughs> um, because I wasn't, but I am now. You know, they yeah. explored the same kind Correct. of themes, yeah. especially what happens after, uh-huh. <laughs> after the fairy tale is over, right. which is really kind of what this story is all about, yeah. uh, at least plot-wise. Or even Wicked, built on not quite a fairy tale, but still a story that everyone knows really well, yeah. Wizard of Oz, which has as a kind of fairy tale, I suppose. I think the fairy tale exercise is really quite a good one. It's, I may it, go home and write one it's, myself. It's, it's because hard, it's, 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 extremely, it's extremely universal in its yeah. themes, and you can go in millions of different yeah. directions. Well, we've I known them since idea. we were children, so it's part of that encoding. The story itself even is part of it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and one of the things that, uh, again, I didn't realize this in, really until I taught the course for a few times. I, I mean, I just made it up as something to try out. I really had... The ideas that came to me came to me only after I watched the students just writing their stories. One of the problems when you have a population of of people in their 19, 20, 21, and teachers talk about it in the coffee room, is that they'll say, you know, these kids can really write. They've had great training. A lot of them were lucky and gone to prep schools or one thing or another but they don't have experience to write about yet. And that's what we think that realism demands. But one of the things I, I kind of stumbled into with this class is exactly what you guys were just saying. We all have those fairy tales. In, in some ways, it's almost being an advantage still just being 18, 19, 20. Mm-hmm. You're closer to that time. You can go back there and get that magic But what fabulous stories have always been is kind of reaching back and harnessing. The other thing I have them do is keep dream journals. Oh. Because you have that same kind of encoding in your dreams. Uh Uh-huh. 
I used to try to do that. <laughs> I could never remember them well enough. If, if you keep writing them, you'll have a little breakthrough a- after a point. The other thing is that, you know, you explain that and you say, you got to write it down right away in the morning. You can't. Mm-hmm. Don't wait for your first cup of coffee. Yeah, it's gone, gone by it's gone. Yeah, it's I gone. had one dream where I actually wrote a complete musical, and it was really, <laughs> really, really good. And I thought, when I wake up, I better write this down, because it was fully imagined from beginning wow. to end. It was absolutely real to me. <laughs> and I wanted to produce it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. then, you know... Have, have, have you had them where you've... Sp- Sung or spoke fluent French? <laughs> or, you ever had I haven't dream? done another language, no. I, I, I don't think so. Have you? Have yeah, you had yeah, those? Yeah, and, and I've had that kind of dream you just described, and, and then it's, it's gone. There's just this feeling, oh, my God, it was so great. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was perfect. Yeah, <laughs> without, yeah. without question, it was perfect, yeah. and yeah. I, I should start writing these down at yeah. my advanced age. Yeah, I had a, a dream once where there was this song, and it was not a song I knew, and it was incredibly beautiful, and I thought, I want to remember yeah. this, but I don't know how to write music, and so yeah. within seconds, it was completely gone, but it was really good. Yeah, I've had, <laughs> I, yeah. I think those are all pretty, pretty common, mm-hmm. common sure. dreams, um, sure. but again, you know, the, the commonality... Is just as important, and but I, I, that's what makes for me what for me makes somebody like Kafka a great writer is that he's he figured out how to harness that mm-hmm. in a way that now generations have learned from him. But if you go back to something like the Bible, you realize just how absolutely important the dream is. Bible story after Bible story. Turn, turns on, on dreams and the interpretation of them. And if you could have any book instantly memorized, Stuart, is there one that you would love to have? Wow, what a question. Perfectly <laughs> off the top of your head. Yeah, no, I'm going to have to... I don't have a ready response. You mentioned the Bible. That's Well, that'd be certainly... I, you couldn't go wrong certainly, with certainly you, a contender. You couldn't go wrong with that. Yeah, you know, Shakespeare's oeuvre, if all of his plays. Yeah, uh, that's what I would think. Yeah. All of Shakespeare. Yeah, or something by John Irving. <laughs> <laughs> Prayer yeah. for Owen Meany is comes to mind uh-huh. for me. That's a wonderful book. Yeah. I have time for one quick side story. Okay. Stuart, have you ever written about clowns? Clowns? That's an odd topic, I know, and no, it's no, I, a, I, I, an inelegant segue, but I wondered <laughs> if... Well, well, let's see where we're going with it. I, I, I haven't, but they've... Clown-like creatures have a marionettes. Yeah. A clown would be a magic object in, a, in our class. Sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, you know, it's the worst time in history to be a clown. Oh, is it ever? It's been a terribly sad time for clowns. Who's... Recorded history, by the way, goes back to ancient Greece. Clowns in the comedies, of course. Clowns have witnessed the shuddering of venerable Ringling Brothers in Barnum and Bailey's Circus just this past year. The layoffs of regional Ronald McDonald's. Have you seen that in the news, Frank? Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, they've decided to cut back on the number of Ronald's. Wow. And the movie It. Right. 
the evil clowns are making it. You know, it is. It has been one packed clown car of woe. That's for sure. It comes on top of decades of portrayals of depressed, malevolent, and downright crazed clowns in movies and on TV. Not to mention real life. You know, there's Krusty the Clown on The mm-hmm. Simpsons, Twisty on American Horror Story, Heath Ledger's Joker, Jack Nicholson's right, Joker, right. John Wayne Gacy. That, <laughs> he was the, a clown. That is yeah. the worst of the bunch. That yeah, is really. the worst. Well, recently, 240 entertainers assembled for the World Clown Association Convention in Minneapolis oh, who in knew? March. Riding, riding alpacas. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, yeah. <laughs> Which, Who knew? <laughs> in, in March, which prompts yeah. the question, haven't clowns <laughs> suffered enough? <laughs> oh, yeah, really. Clowns from across the United States and nearly a dozen countries gathered to consider tiny trikes, colossal footwear, and the future of their craft. Exhibit booths featured the latest in, of course, rubber chickens, oversized <laughs> pants, magic tricks, and latex noses. Competitions included appearance, originality, and this is a word that's completely made up. You might enjoy this. Paradibility. That is the ability to walk and jest at the same time. <laughs> How are you spelling parrot? Paradibility. P A R A D A B I L I T Y. Okay. Doesn't exist in my. It doesn't exist in my English dictionary. Yeah. It's so much better than chew gum and. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Walk and jest simultaneously. Yeah, yeah, that's mm. wonderful. Charlie Chaplin must have been one of the. He great. was one of the great yeah. parad whatever. Paradebilitators. Paradebilitators. Yeah. yeah. There were workshops on juggling, puppetry, mime, magic, and perfecting perfect pies. Here's a hint. <laughs> Uh, a clown secret. You don't use whipped cream, but you use sh- shaving soap and water. You mix it in a bucket with a paint mixer attached to a power drill. It makes it nice and frothy oh. and stays on the face. I I, I'm, I'm going to start coating my lemon meringue pies. <laughs> <laughs> Clowns were uh, strenuously advised to abandon all white face and costumes when they went out in public. Veteran Trisha, here's her clown name, Priscilla Mooseberger, (laughs) Manuel, 56, of Maple Lake, Minnesota, says, It has diminished my income. The damage is done in so many respects. There's a whole generation that when they think of a clown, they think of something scary. Though Manuel adds, people still love us in the nursing homes. (laughs) (laughs) The solution, clowns say, is staring them in the face. Lose the grease paint. Yet the mask remains a liberating tool for some clowns. When you put on the makeup, you feel free. You can be silly and joyful, says Manuel. Clowning will never be what it was, but I know it will continue to go on and on. We'll survive the closing of the circus. We'll survive scary movies. There's something in the human spirit that wants to make people laugh and be happy. So go hug a clown today <laughs> and let's let this art form not drift away. What's Feel that bad word again? for these? What's... Paradability. Bring on the paradability. <laughs> paradability. <laughs> Tough year for clowns. Tough time. Mm-hmm. We end our episodes each week, Stuart, with our kiss of death segment. <laughs> yeah. which is did a, we do this the last time? Yeah, of course we did. <laughs> oh, all right. Which is always a tribute to someone we've lost. This is someone that you may actually have known, Stuart. On our last episode, you said something that we almost used as a title of our episode. Music is the defining art for me. It always has been. I know that you're big music lover mm-hmm. and you use music to write to as well well you, you know, notice i tried to sneak in a song here i, 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 I noticed that and you can sneak in another song 
This is taken from an article by longtime Chicago Tribune columnist Howard Reich, who has covered music and the arts in this city since the 1970s. In the world of Chicago cabaret, no singer-pianist was revered more by her peers than Audrey Morris. Uh, yeah. Did you ever see Audrey? I did not, but you I know, know the who name. That is. Yeah, I do. How about you, Stuart? I never, saw, I, I never saw her, but I certainly know who she is. A so. beautiful, sultry voice. The extraordinary subtlety of her vocal sophistication and her pianism. She accompanied herself uh-huh. very much like a Becky Menzies these days. Uh-huh. And worldly wise manner of her delivery made her a subject of fascination to visiting jazz stars such as piano titan Oscar Peterson. Audrey, as singer, artist, performer, friend, if I had to boil it down to one word, it would be truth. The quickest way to lose Audrey was to ask her to sing something that she didn't believe in. Uh, Morris's devotion to the essence of a song won her the admiration of artists more celebrated than she. She was born uh, in November of 1928, so she was 89, on the south side of Chicago. And trained as a pianist at the city's American Conservatory of Music, Morris came of age in an era when jazz performance and classic songwriting were ubiquitous in popular culture. She said that when she got into this business in the 1940s, there were performers like me in any direction you turned your head. I started out, she said, in an era when there were two or three great new tunes coming out every week when Randolph Street, Rush Street, and other great boulevards overflowed with superb music. What a time, she said. The introspective and somewhat melancholy quality of Morris's work, as well as her movie star good looks, <laughs> worked to her advantage, drawing audiences to her mystique. Hollywood soon called. Warner Brothers uh, offered a recording contract. I actually got so far as to record the opening number for Mervyn Leroy's film Home Before Dark with a huge Warner Brothers orchestra, Morris said. But Warner Brothers threw out the recording when I refused to sign their contract. I suppose I didn't sign it out of stubbornness or stupidity, but I was determined to play the music that I wanted to play, and the contract allowed them to direct everything I did. I just didn't want them to turn me into something I was not. So I said, goodbye Hollywood and I never regretted it Morris returned in the late 1950s whereupon she became a leading attraction at Mr. Kelly's London House and other key Chicago rooms the era of Mr. Kelly's and London House eventually waned with the rise of rock and roll in the 1960s and 70s leading Morris into semi-retirement by the 1980s she began to re-emerge in cabarets such as the long gone Yvette's and Toulouse She gave her last public performance in April of 2017 at Orchestra Hall in a tribute to Oscar Peterson inspired by the recording Oscar with Love. The three-CD homage featured pianist Ramsey Lewis, Michelle Legrand, Chick Corea, and one singer-pianist, Audrey Morris. Wow, all-star group. I'll say. So her public farewell was a gentle and a vulnerable homage to the pianist that she called her idol. She very much planned it that way, going out with a tribute to her friend. It was a final testament to her delicate art. Audrey Morris, singer-pianist and icon of Chicago cabaret and jazz, has left us at 89. Oh. Stuart, do you get out to listen to music very often these days? I know you're uh, not extremely as busy. M- much as I used to, but I mean, we have a yeah, Patricia Barber. I mean, we have mm. one of the greats. Monday night, Green Mill, and you know, with the added thing that she's a composer as well. A lot of the songs she sings, she's written. Yeah, the Green Mill, one of the last I love great the Green Mill. Yeah. Uh, jazz clubs mm-hmm. uh, in in the country. Becky Menzies uh, has been on the show, um, oh, yeah. and she and her partner. Tom Michael, 
Uh, they actually sang at our wedding reception. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I was there. Well, I want to thank my guest, Stuart Dybeck, oh, for yeah. gracing us with his creativity and writing insight and for sharing such marvelous stories with us mm. today. So, so kind and generous of you to share those. We're going to leave you today with the a little bit of Audrey Morris for your listening pleasure. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski. And Frank Taranjo. Saying so long and keep listening. In ransom And when the twilight steals I know How the lady in the harbor feels When I want rain I get sunny weather I'm just as blue as the sky Since love is gone Can't pull myself together Guess I'll hang my tears out to dry Friends ask me out I tell them I'm busy must get a new alibi I stay at home And ask myself where is he Guess I'll hang my tears out to dry Dry little teardrops My little teardrops Hanging on a string of dreams Fly little memories My little memories Remind him of our crazy schemes Somebody said Just forget about him I gave that treatment a try Strangely enough I got along without him Then one day he passed me Right by Oh, Draw